Hello, and welcome to the Incontention 8-Bit Podcast. It's a Sam Snyder host with Matt Cranstuber. Man, that's kind of a little bit weird. I'm thrown off a little bit. i got to be honest. With the 8-Bit part? Whole new mantra. Yeah. 8-Bit Podcast. Uh, followed by our special guest host, my wife, Leah Cranstuber. Hello. Yeah, you got to project out there. Leah's, this is our, Leah's first time podcasting, and uh, we're doing um, our video game-themed episode of In Contention uh, called 8-Bit In Contention. Potentially future episodes uh, in the works, but uh, today we're going to be talking about video games, where we came from. And, uh, and kind of how we got into gaming, get a little background information there. And then we had some, uh, we posted a tweet earlier today asking people what they would want us to talk about. So we got some pretty good feedback there. And I think we got an idea of what we want to talk about, which is basically be JRPGs. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's a huge subject, especially for guys like us and uh, a lot of other people like us uh, who, I don't, I guess the best way I can put it, we're a bunch of nerds and we like playing RPGs. So <laughs> what can I say? So... Um, Sam, like, why don't you give a little background info, like, how did you, when did you first pick up, like, the square slash cubicle controller and, like, player game? Like, what, Uh, 1987 or so? So, like, was it a Nintendo controller? It was a Nintendo. The the first, uh, I was actually, my brother and I were, like, the first kids in our block to get the Nintendo. Nice. And we got the old, uh, the Nintendo Super, uh, Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt combo. Right. And it was just... Our house, Party Central, for like two months cause until Christmas. Like we got it in like October, because somehow we talked my mom into it. I have no idea how. And then everyone was at our house for like two months straight until December when they all got them for Christmas. Oh yeah, and there was like there was a party. And then Kroger started carrying them. You could go to pharmacies; they'd rent them out. I mean, it was like it became a phenomenon. Oh yeah, it was the whole thing. And this was after, of course. Well, a lot of people who are I'm I'm 30. Cranny is a little under that. 29. 29. And uh, we grew up in the era where everything was just video games over time. Oh, yeah. And what we forget is that uh, about, well, three years before the NES came to the United States, uh, the video game market just crashed. Mm -hmm. And so video games were kind of like seen as a past fad, and it was just this thing. It was like pinball. Like this thing that got big for a second. And so, you know, like my my neighbor... um, this this kid I grew up with, Andrew, he uh, used to live right next to me, and everyone else got a Nintendo for Christmas, and his dad got him an Atari. <laughs> oh, his dad was like, we had an Atari upstairs, here's your Christmas present. <laughs> you can play some Missile Command. Yeah, so, yeah, really, 1987 changed the world. I, I was the same way. We had an Atari. Um, I remember playing it down in our basement. I, I actually didn't play it much. I was very little times, like four, three or four years old when my brother got the Atari but I remember like sitting on the ground after my brother and his friends would play, and we had this unfinished, nasty basement. My dad had a workbench that he'd like saw things out, so like sawdust on the floor. <laughs> but I would play uh, Qbert, and I would just get totally into this game. And then when my brother got the Nintendo, I was like, "Holy smokes! Like this just takes anything that the Nintendo did, or anything that the Atari uh, the Atari did, and just improved on it a hundredfold." Oh yeah, the games had depth to them. You're like actually immersing yourself in. Some sort of world, so it was like super uh, engaging, and obviously, like for like a you know five to ten year old, is just like amazing because this technology didn't exist, right? I mean, you're watching it unfold in front of you. There's no magazines, there's no internet. It literally is like, hey, check this thing I got out that you don't know what it is, and no one knows what it is, 
and play it. I used to have the first episode or issue of Nintendo Power. Oh yeah, that had a uh, big Zelda map. Yeah, it, but the, the do you remember the cover? Mario. It was jumping. a claymation of Mario Two, and like <laughs> the like you when you wanted to find out about Nintendo stuff, you bought Nintendo Power, oh, which yeah. we didn't understand was a magazine, of course, that was put out by Nintendo. So every game was awesome, <laughs> right? Just like look how awesome five stars pack pack watch. Right. Well, they didn't review anything. That was the thing. It was just like everything would just look how awesome this is, and like so I'd be like Airwolf. I love Airwolf, and then the game was not very good. They they no they had an awesome marketing strategy. I actually I actually read Nintendo Power from I I, I had a few of the first issues, but I didn't subscribe. Uh, and and so I was like from the Super NES very very beginning of the Super NES era all the way up through Nintendo sixty four. So I was like fourteen fifteen years old by the time I was done reading Nintendo Power. So I have stacks of them uh, at my parents' house, just big big volumes of them. They used to send uh, a couple of the bonus ones. They would send strategy guides, and I still have the Final Fantasy. That is worth some money. Now. That thing's unreal. Like you go it's back awesome. and look at it; it's like fully detailed. It's got all the specs. I mean, it's it, it was just it's a different age back then. Like when you would get those, it was a special thing to get the magazine. Oh, yeah. Just like, you would get so excited. Um, Leah actually bought me a subscription to uh, to Electronic Gaming Monthly a, a few years ago, and. Uh, I don't even think they're existing. I think they just went out of business or something. Really? But I really enjoyed, like, hitting the magazine again and, like, pretending that I didn't see it on the internet already on Kutaku <laughs> and just kind of, like, you know. But, uh, anyway, so... The internet ruined everything. It did. It ruined, especially, <laughs> yeah, it, it ruined the, the excitement factor. You didn't have, like, trailers. You'd just be like, well, there's a new Final Fantasy coming out because I saw this picture with a bunch of little squiggly characters from Japan... And uh, it looks awesome. <laughs> oh, there would be like a rumor thing. Like, we hear in the next version of Mario, <laughs> he gets a raccoon tail and fly. And it's like, how do they find this out? Because they work for the company that makes the game. It's been out in Japan for like two years. But we don't know that. Like, we didn't realize that half the games we got were like a year old in Japan. <laughs> By the time we got them, you know, that NES came out in like, what, like 84 or something in Japan or something crazy? Yeah, pretty early. And like, it took like, it was like, Two years before it was here at all, and then it was just in, like, you know, select markets, and it was, like, 87, I think, was the year that, it, yeah. like, maybe Christmas 86, or maybe it was, you know, around 87. 87 that I... 87 was, that was like, the year that it broke out. Yeah. And then, like, the, the NES got retired, or really, succeed, we'll call it succeeded. Um, like, 92 or 93. It was right. way... So, like, I mean, it had almost 10 years... Yeah. Of being like a, a thing that was produced and sold. I mean, you know, we're on, on the current uh, video game console generation. We're approaching uh, eight years, I think. Eighty ninety two thousand four, maybe two thousand five. Yeah, that's about right. So about it's about seven years, and we might surpass that because uh, Sony has no desire to release a new console. Yeah. Microsoft has no desire to release a new now console. Nintendo's doing one. Well, they got like this weird tablet-looking thing. If you have a chance to go look at it, it's pretty. Nintendo cool. is so far behind the technological curve. For I that. think they don't care though. No, they don't because they, they're into casual gaming and not the hardcore gaming. Yeah. But they were so far behind the curve that it's not a big deal for them to do that. Like they're obviously putting a lot of money into it, but the fact that they didn't have HD graphics was becoming a real problem for them. Mm-hmm. The fact that everyone else got console, like you know, it'd be like the you know, you look at the the okay, video game uh, ratings are really horrible right now. Take whatever it is, take like. Like take like three points off, mm. and you have the real rating. Like they're, they're, they're so absurdly inflated. Um, like a ten is usually like a ten, but like a nine is like an eight, and a seven is like a four. Yeah. Um, 
but like every single one, it's just like Nintendo. Or it's like you know PlayStation uh, three nine point five, uh, Xbox nine point five, we like six. Yeah, and like no, for somebody to get rid of right. six now, I mean like they 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 get they you know they'll get like a modern or they'll get they don't get Modern Warfare. They got um, they get the dexterity Call of Duty. games. Well, they, they got get, like the things they get oh, yeah. like Call of Duty, but they get like a really. Uh, watered down version, and nobody buys it. Yeah, and they're losing so much money to the uh, to these huge uh, um, you know franchises that they need to sort of catch up. But like the other ones, they spent so like I th- you know they're probably just now becoming profitable on the PlayStation Three. Like they just put so much money into it, they sold it at a loss for so long. Yeah, that you know we're going to see this generation go. You know until they can't go no further. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Lily, when did you start playing? Man, uh, magic. <laughs> I gotta get my brain in video game mode. So when did you uh, pick up your first controller? I was fortunate enough to be born in 1987, so I never knew a day of my life without <laughs> amazing gaming. Now, my brother had a Nintendo when I was born, and I remember just watching him play and trying to play myself, like Mario and things, and I was just horrible. And I thought that he was so amazing that he had like special powers. Yeah, he was. We were. And this is a very special memory of my brother because sometimes he wouldn't be home and I'd be like, I really want to try to beat that level that Casey couldn't beat, but I couldn't even like get inside the pipes. So I would be like trying over and over to jump into the pipes and eventually (laughs) I'd be so frustrated I would just scream his name because in my mind (laughs) he had some real gaming power (laughs) and I thought maybe he, his spirit would bring some to me. And I'd always end up going through the pipes right after I screamed his name. So it was a very special, (laughs) magical kind of thing. And I also love just uh, watching people play and playing with them. It's kind of like reading a book with someone and just getting so excited about the plot and the characters. And that's something that I've done my whole life. And part of the reason that Matt and I (laughs) ended up getting married is because of our shared love of video games and, and stories. Yeah, oh yeah, many many fun nights playing Super Nintendo games, and uh, she uh, she was one of the few girls I ever met that played JRPGs, which we're going to definitely dig into a whole lot in this episode. Um, which is, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to get that perspective because you know it's not something that's covered a lot these days. You know, everything's based on like traditional, you know, th- uh, today's gaming standards, which are. Are you playing StarCraft Three? Are you playing Warcraft? You know what console are you? What console games are you playing? Black Ops. Yeah, you, yeah. You are you? Uh, do you have the latest Modern Warfare? Do you care about first persons, or are you playing all the you know the Tales games, which are basically anime games? So there's definitely niches today, but there isn't really a lot of coverage on the the, the older stuff. So I'm actually really glad that we're talking about this kind of stuff today because it's sort of a little uh, peek into the mind of a lot of gamers that are our age. You know, Leah's just a little bit younger, but she's experienced pretty much all the same games that we have in the you know the same light, and and I think that uh, you know being able to talk about that is is pretty cool. So I know that there are there are resources out there. Um, I just you know before we get into this for retro gaming, uh, there's a ton of stuff like out on YouTube. There's websites that are dedicated to retro gaming. So like you know if if we talk about anything during this, you don't know what it what it is. Just head over to YouTube and uh, and type in the game. So if we say you know Final Fantasy VIII and you never played it, type in Final Fantasy VIII and then uh, you can usually follow it by like by like you know a walkthrough or something. And somebody will actually sit down and play the game for you, which is it's a, actually a pretty cool medium. If uh, if you don't want to go out and and drop the money in a game and you just want to like burn time like while you're studying or while you're uh, you know 
you know, work, working at work or something, go ahead and throw on one of these games and just watch somebody play through it. It's it's super entertaining. It's much more fun to watch speedruns of games. Oh, than totally. Than, like, uh, one of the things that became popular maybe, like, six or seven years ago was speedruns where, you know, you, you can play a game on an emulator and people would, you know, be playing, you know, their NES games and be like, you know, some sort of competition where you realize, well, how quickly can you beat this game? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's all these games that, as a kid... I could never be. My parents would buy me this game. And yeah, like, like Ghosts and Goblins? Who the hell's ever going to be Ghosts and Goblins? Have you ever played Karate? Oh, I played Karate. Like, Karate was one of the early Nintendo games, and it's really bad. And, like, uh, my, my friend had it, and we would play it for hours. And we'd always get to, like, the end of Stage 1 and be like, oh, we can't beat Stage 1, right? And I don't know how, as a child, I was able to play that game. Because, like, if I was, if it was, like, for free on the web... I played for like ten minutes now and be like, "This is the worst thing I've ever." That's played. the thing, and this is because we didn't have. We were dumb. We had no. It was lack of substitutes. So you, so you went out and rented a game, right? And you just, you would just hope to God that you didn't get the game that was like nothing but text. Like that was, that was like the the fate worse than death. Oh, I like, like those games. Oh, see, I didn't. So I'm like, well, I don't want to play like you know Destiny of an Emperor because like I don't want to play this dumb strategy game that I have to read a book for that's missing. Like, because there's no remember, there's no there's no way to find that book. Yeah. Uh, what you wanted was the platformers. So, like, there's, like, gyms out there, like, low G-Man. Have you never played that game on NES? Like, I remember running that game and just being like, yes, I hit the freaking NES lottery at Farmore. Because I, you know, Farmore's a, a pharmacy. Um, you know, because this game I brought home, me and my friend, you know, we could freaking shoot guns at things, like which is 99% of NES games. But um, let's... Uh, Let's transition over and uh, and get right into our JRPG uh, subject. And uh, one of the ones, uh, one of the questions that was asked of us was from uh, our uh, our Twitter friend Evan Hale. And I'm just going to pull it up here. Sorry, uh, sorry, I don't have that at the ready. But he basically asked. Um, uh, he says, "You seem like a big JRPG fan." This is after we had uh, right. talked about it on a couple shows. What do you think modern JRPGs need to do to improve perception? So this is. This is going to be sort of the background info, uh, or this is going to be the background of the discussion that we're going to have, but I want to talk sort of like RPGs um, on a timeline. Let's talk about like the progression of what happened with the JRPG and how it got to where where it's at today. Right. Because really there's two very distinct lines between the American RPG and the Japanese RPG. Um, The American RPGs really predate Japanese RPGs by quite a bit, though they never really made it. They, you know, there were a few games. Bard's Tale, which was, uh, you know, kind of one of the very early computer RPGs mm. uh, that was, you know, um, it was a big advancement at the time because it was, like, graphics-based. Before mm. that, you had Zork, which was the text-based yeah, adventure text-based. game. And, you know, you know, very earliest, really, computer games like were... King's Quest, that would be a... Yeah, no, but, but even before that, the very earliest... Zork is one of the earliest computer games. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it was being played when, when computers were, like, mainframes at universities, mm-hmm. and somebody just made this game up. And that's what very early, you know, very early, you know, computer games were, you know, done by nerds. And mo- a lot, there was a lot of people who played D&D, and they figured out, you can play D&D with people who aren't in the room. Like, this is awesome. So, like, you know, kind of, like, interestingly enough... You know, the whole mud thing almost, like, you know, it, it was kind of like World of Warcraft before World of Warcraft. Mm. But those didn't transfer over to consoles well because you just didn't have the technology. Yeah. And so uh, the RPGs you did get were, especially the ones that succeeded, were the JRPGs, mm. which were a very different strain because, again, the American RPG really comes from a D&D base. And the Japanese RPG, I don't know what the, what the first one of those is. I mean, I know Dragon Quest was early. 
Yeah, but well, I don't they, know. If the, I don't know if, like, if you go back, like, what's the first JRPG? Well, they didn't. Uh, they didn't think from a marketing perspective that the JRPG would be successful in America. They saw the success of Zelda, and they actually mailed copies. I don't know if you remember this. Oh, my friend got one. Yeah, they mailed copies of Dragon Warrior to people, and I remember at the time getting it. And most people were like, I don't want this. And they would just toss it aside. <laughs> and I, I, I admit, I actually played it and didn't enjoy the experience. I thought it was too it was too cumbersome. Like, everything you wanted to do, you had to, like, click multiple times. And, and I, like, my, my, my brain as, like, a 7- or 8-year-old is like, I'm not going to, like, spend the time to do this. I want to just shoot a gun at somebody. There were also really bad rentals because you couldn't beat them in a day. True. Mm. Very true. Um so I, I think that the first real JRPG was Dragon Quest. I think that that was the first mainstream one. That's like when Nintendo was like, look, we're going to introduce people to this genre. It's very popular in Japan, huge right. in Japan. Well, of course, with Dragon Quest in Japan, they rebranded it as Dragon Warrior in the United States because, right. you know, warriors are awesome. In the, and, you know, if you look at the, the Japanese art, box art, it's much different than the American box art, yeah. which is like a dude fighting a dragon. Yeah. Because, like, they're like, we got to sell this. Just have a dude stabbing a dragon in the face. <laughs> Yeah, and they, uh, you know, and then the next time that you really saw, like, the, the actual first successful uh, game is actually Final Fantasy, the first Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking into Anderson's, which is a department store here, and looking at that game and, and thinking, I have to own this. Like, I remember the art in the front of, like, this little sphere with a sword in it. I'm like, this looks awesome. And, and in spite of my experience with Dragon Warrior, because I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a Zelda. And, uh, and I brought it home, and, and me and my buddy played it, and we grinded through that game after, you know, uh, you know, about six months of playing, we were able to get through it. But it was amazing to us that, like, it wasn't a, it wasn't a pickup game. It wasn't like, hey, come over and play, you know, video games with me, and you'd be like, well, okay, well, let's play Mario again. Okay, and then you play Mario. Oh, well, let's play, you know, Super Mario 2. And, and like, you would just kind of, like, rotate through them. It was like, hey, we're on Grugu Volcano. Like, let's kill Carrie so that we can, you know, get to the ice cave and get the, you know, and, like, you have, like, the strategy guide. So, like, you're, like, you, you're, like, able to see what your progress is and you're you're getting excited about getting to the end and you kind of have, like, this, you're on a quest. And that was the first time that I remember thinking, like, wow, then, you know, you know, again, my 10-year-old self, like, wow, this is really something. Like, I, I would enjoy playing these again. And, um, and I'll be honest, Nintendo didn't have a lot of options after that. I mean... You had games that tried to, to emulate that uh, to emulate that platform, but they didn't really they didn't really nail it again. I think until Super Nintendo. Um, I think they had a lot of great platforming games, a lot of great puzzle games. Um, they they created genres that didn't exist, and they right. really, I mean, the NES as a platform has like nine hundred games, and you know, half of them are just masterpieces. They're they're amazing. But I don't think... It's a lot less than half. No, I mean, but just to go through and kind of di- to digest the, the music and the surroundings and right. the art and everything that went into it. I mean, there's some there's some games that came out in the in the latter half of Ness's life. Uh, the Star Traffic series, I think, was very successful. Yeah, that's an awesome game. Um, some games that, like, sort of blended RPG elements, uh, like like even, like, Karnov or something is... One that you you're in a, a action world, but you get to collect items. Goonies was another one you could collect a lot of items, and you sort of could go through labyrinths. And so, you the, know, the battery backup feature became much more important in yes. the NES cartridges at some point. Yes, as more games you know developed, having you know 
Of course, because like you know, you look at the the early NES games, and almost none of them have a save feature. No, you just have like a twenty five mm. character, you know, password that you had to write right. down. Right. Even even, yeah, even Metroid was a game that you know it's it, you know it's almost hard to classify it as an RPG, but it has the same elements of like you a character and you're going to find stuff and get new powers and like you know you have to remember your your code. And, like, every once in a while, you'd, like, you know, you, you put your code in for the day, and you're playing for a while, and you write it down, and the next day it wouldn't work, because, like... Because you wrote the O wrong or something. Oh, my God. Or, yeah, there was something you put in wrong, and, it just, <laughs> and you had to read the whole days of progress. Oh, man. I, I learned everything I learned about penmanship from writing video game codes. <laughs> and they were long. They were. It, Legacy of the Wizard is one of my favorite action-adventure games. It's actually called Dragon Slayer 4 in Japan. And it's actually... Uh, the code is... I think it's like 36 characters, and there's punctuation marks and ampersands. I mean, it's awful. And then you would, like, get the, uh, you know, one of the, the fun things about Nintendo was that um, when this when, when all these games had these code systems, companies would release booklets of codes. Yes. And you could go through it, and your friend would get one for Christmas from his, like, grandma or something. And you'd find the game that you had, and it would just be like, here's the save that is this. Here's the save that is this. <laughs> and you know, there was some dude... Who just like you know? Because this is grinded those numbers. Well, this all is pre-internet, so they had to go <laughs> around and be like, uh, "We'll give you like five bucks if you tell us like all your save codes for you know for that, and, and then send in like save codes or something." And they used to do that. They used to developers would put the codes in the game. There was a section entirely dedicated in Nintendo Power for codes. Yeah. Right? Which so um, uh, the point that I was going to make is that you know the birth of the JRPG obviously has legs and sort of all over the place. But I don't really think that it got any legs until the Super Nintendo, which is what I what I think we'll probably right. focus on. Uh, you know, for the second part of this, I think we should probably talk about like how how it birthed into like this thing that nobody ever expected could become as big as it, as it did. Um, which I don't know when your first experience was, but my first experience uh, with Super Nintendo, they they uh, previewed it in Nintendo Power. And obviously the graphics were just amazing. You see Mario like with you know gradiented uh, you know capes and stuff, and you're like, how did they even do this? Pilot Wings was like 3D. And Pilot Wings, yeah, it shows like the top down view. Of this guy, and you're like, what? This is like <laughs> three dimensional. Like, what next? They're just going to be videos, you know? They're just so. Um, you know, I remember getting the Super Nintendo, playing Super Mario World, and just being like blown away. Obviously, like at that point, I think I'm like 12, 13 years old. So it's just like I, I still rank Super Mario World as like. Top five games it's all time. It's easily top five games of all time. Um, and I I had Super Mario World, and I bought ActRaiser, so I got, like, the first taste of, like, platforming. It had, like, sort of a simulation element to it also. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was like, Populous with swords. Yeah. Because, you know, kids can't play Populous. No, no. And actually, one of Leah's favorite songs is, uh, uh, I, 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 a little aside, I'm a big music nut, which we'll maybe talk about in another episode, um... And uh, most of my iPod, like 75% of it, is just video game remixes and various <laughs> chiptunes and stuff. And uh, this one song came on, and Leah's like, who composed this? Like, you know, this is beautiful. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, some Japanese guy in, in Japan put that soundtrack together. And some, you know, the, the London Philharmonic Orchestra took that that 16-bit tune and turned it into, uh, you know, what, it, what I'm sure the composer envisioned the song to sound like before he threw it in the Super Nintendo engine and turned right. it into, like, you know, this pile of mush. Beep-boop. Yeah, beep-boop. <laughs> um, so my my first real JRPG was Final Fantasy uh, 
Final Fantasy Four, or, or in the states it's called Final Fantasy Two. So you're one of those people that's good, that has to use all the Japanese numbering. Well, no, I mean you, you got it. I mean, this is an episode about JRPGs. We're not going to be like, oh, Final Fantasy Two, because like, okay, well, here's the thing. I, I, I still Why think it was two and three. Okay, well, let's inform our viewers. Final Fantasy Two and Final Fantasy Three were Japan only releases on the Famicom. And I said Famicom too. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that. Uh, weren't released here until like 2006 or something. They, they, you know, the only way you could play them was in the you know late 2000s. People put uh, emulated versions of them out there that had a lot older than that. Yeah, like 1998 or something, whatever. Um, that, <laughs> whatever. Uh, that you could play versions of these games, and then it squares off. Eventually, said, "Hey, well, I guess all these completists want to play Final Fantasy games. Let's go ahead and release them on you know DS and all these other." Right. Platforms. They're not going to pay. They're not going to pay 50 bucks for them. They'll pay 15. They'll pay 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that was like that playing that game was the first time you had like a real storyline where you 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 actually were able to like have this world. It wasn't you know Final Fantasy One and Dragon Warrior. You walk up to a person and they're like, go to this tower, and the and the like the the little thing goes. Or in Dragon Quest, it's like you know, and, right. and it's like one box long. Whereas, like, in the beginning of Final Fantasy, like, the first scene is the, the Red Wings are flying to Baron, and Cecil is on this airship, and he's, like, you know, he's about to go kill all these people and uh, to, take the, to take the crystal. And it's, like, what? Like, there's actual dialogue. Like, this guy is talking to his shipmates, and, and they're flying in these ships, and they land, and they talk to the king. And it's, like, wow, there's a, there's a world here. It's, they're actually telling a story. In, in terms of American... So... Just to go back just one second. Um, if you look at Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, it is a it is really a Japanese version of an American RPG. When you get down to it, because your your character doesn't really say anything, you talk to other people, but you sort of go around and you quest. And even Final Fantasy One, you know, you got to name all of your characters, and you just sort of go around and quest. Your your characters don't have their own personality. You're not really telling a story. You are, you know, you are enacting part of your big quest, and that's. Most American RPGs, it's more about the sort of questing around and doing things than necessarily the story. Like, the story is obviously always there, but, you know, it, it's something that you interact with. It's something you make decisions with. Those ones didn't really have, like, decision trees the way that if you look like the Ultima series, which was kind of the pinnacle of American PC type of RPGs for the longest time. You know, you look at those today, and they have things that... Developers are still working on, like, morality systems. You know, you had to be a real stats hound. The, the Japanese RPGs really, you know, condensed a lot of those elements. They were just like, all right, you're questing, you can get some better equipment, and that's about it. Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing that, uh, you know, I, I think that, that what drew me to JRPGs more than anything is the story. Right, and the, that was the first... Uh, that the first JRPG I played, I don't know if it's the first one ever, where the story was really front and center. Where, you know, n- your characters don't do anything in Final Fantasy other than turn from monks into white mages and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or monks into ninjas. Like, that's all your characters do. That's your progression. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you start off and, you know, you're watching this dude, you're right, beat up these huge eyeball things and then uh, blow up a town. But then he, you know, becomes good. And you're following this guy's story. And that's really what the game becomes, is that it's not like your unnamed character going on a quest. It is the 
the telling of a story that's sort of already been developed. Mm. And, all, you know, you, you had options in the first Final Fantasy, and it's, I think, I don't know if two or three did also, where you could choose your own party and name everybody and, yeah. and choose their class and stuff. And you didn't have that here because, you know, the game was designed in a way that it's like, okay, at this part in the game you have a white mage, a black mage, a fighter, and, uh, a, and a, a monk. Like, that's what we want you to have, and we're going to construct a game around that. Yeah. And it really decided your party for you. And it, you know, you were following its story, and that's that's what that's what it did. You followed its story, yeah. And that was a big change, and that was really what JRPGs have become today. Yeah, no, that's a good, good, uh, good perspective. Um, you know, I, I think that that is probably why I enjoyed them more than the other games, and why I continue to this day get more enjoyment out of storyline-driven games. But we'll kind of like progress to that. Um, you know. Obviously, the Golden Age happened a few years after the release of Final Fantasy uh, IV. In 1991, that's when that was released, and I think it was like 1994 or 1995, whatever, Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger were very close releases. Secret of Mana was right on it. Yes, Secret of Mana. And Secret of Mana was sort of the hybrid, right? Because it used the item system, um, but it had the depth of an RPG, right? Like Link is you're still leveling up. You were still leveling up. You were yes. still uh, had options in terms of like which stats you're improving. Forge your weapons and right. You, you know, had to fly around an airship, like right. Know. So it was you know it was it's you know what we think now is an action RPG, which is what basically all RPGs are now anyway. Yeah, sure. But yeah. you know it, it was uh, it, it was a huge. It was a little bit different, and it combined the you know the storytelling elements of Final Fantasy. Along with the you know the item system and all and the magic system and being able to select things and all that with the sort of you know link to the link running around and having to actually hit things and not just you know select attack and yeah no that's I I, I remember Secret of Mana being just an incredible experience uh, you know I, I we, we've all played Link to the Past we've all played. Uniracers, we've all. I mean, we're not, this isn't going to be that show. Like, I, I want to talk more about the impact of the the RPGs on Super Nintendo because there are a lot. Uh, me and Sam actually have gone into many conversations about uh, the merits of each system, and 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 I think that that would make a really good topic yeah. for another episode. Um, which actually, that conversation is what caused us to do this sideshow in the first place. I will call it sideshow, right? <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's so I think once Final Fantasy VI came out, or Final Fantasy III, whatever, uh, you know, Nintendo had improved their technology to a point where they could cram a ton of data on a cart. Um, they, they actually had very variable cart sizes. I think at the start they had 8, uh, eight megabytes, and by the time they did Chrono Trigger they had 32 megs. So we're talking, they would actually advertise it. They would say, this game is 32 megabytes. And they would say, and then, and then the, the, the reader looks at it and says, oh, this game is humongous. Like, right, there's right. got to be so much going on. <clears throat> I got a quick question for you. Did you ever uh, get into, uh, the other thing that really bridged the gap between these two eras was the Game Boy era. Did you ever play in the Game Boy Final Fantasies? I did. I played, my one of my favorite games is Seiken Densetsu 1, which is Final Fantasy Adventure on Game Boy. I love Final Fantasy Adventure. It's so fun. To this day, that, no joke, I will go, you know, we talked about speedruns. Right. Uh, one of my favorite forms of entertainment is just pick a game that I, I liked playing a long time ago. Leah can Leah can attest to this. Mm-hmm. And actually, I just did last night, I think I watched three. 
um, I'll put it on YouTube. And so Final Fantasy Adventure is one I put on all the time because it's such a quick playthrough. I think it's like 15 minutes. What? Yeah, it's like so fast because a tool assisted speed run is different than a than a, well, a traditional yeah. speed run because they use glitches. Uh, so a lot of times they'll skip over very large parts. You know, like they'll get the airship 10 minutes into the game or something. But, uh, I mean, Final Fantasy Adventure, Final Fantasy Legend, one, 1, 2, and 3 were... See, I never played the Final Fantasy Legends, and I, I, I was actually wondering if those were developed in Japan or if those were American. You know, I'll be honest, they kind of de- they kind of devolved a little from... I mean, they had the formula of a Final Fantasy. They're like, well, you get in a battle, you collect items, like, you, it's turn You get an airship at some point. Yeah, but it's like... It was pretty loose, loosely based on it. I think like Final Fantasy Legend three was like a real Final Fantasy. Like if you went back and played it, you're like, oh well, this is this is pretty interesting. Um, it it felt more like playing Final Fantasy one on the NES. The other two were pretty awful because there 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 were actually quite a few RPGs for the Game Boy. Like like Metroid on Game Boy was just an incredible game. I could beat the game in like thirty three minutes or something. That game is amazing. <laughs> you got the Spider Ball. Like that, I remember. Like it introduces Spider Roll. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, and like you know, and the Game Boy often I think gets forgotten as a you know, as a uh, you know a, a, a consoling thing, but you know that was really you know there was a that's a the NES was so took so long to to sort of you know before the uh, the NES was uh, so long before the NES, NES was there was like a huge you know time when the Game Boy was really kind of more advanced than the NES. Mm-hmm. And so you you got to see a lot of things that people were doing with the games, and there was you know uh, you know a lot of things that really got tried out in on the Game Boy that became sort of standard when the Super Nintendo came around. Um, a lot of you know there's a lot of very innovative stuff going on there, um, you know. But you, you, they're really hard to play because even if you play them in like virtualized, like they never look very good because the resolution was so yeah. bad on them. Yeah. They and came out with the Super Game Boy, which I think was like the last hurrah of the, you know, the 8-bit handheld. And I, I, I enjoyed putting it on the big screen because that was always my problem was, you know, back when the Game Boy first came out, it was like this big clunky thing. It ran on, you know, four AA batteries. And if you wanted to be able to see the screen, you had to like shine like a, 5,000 lumen, you know, light at it, and then you put a huge magnifying glass on it, you know, where, like, jewelers lose they on sold, your eyes. They sold this, like, these kits where you could buy them for, like, 60 bucks, where it was, like, a magnifying glass that had, like, it was, like, a book reader where it has, like, lights on the magnifying glass. Like, a joystick holder on it? Yeah. And, like, like speakers yeah. that folded out? Yeah, I mean, like, you had, like, this, yeah. so all of a sudden, your Game Boy, your little portable thing is, like, Eight pounds, and he has to be tied to a a backpack with a, ba- a battery. Let's say a, like a gasoline-powered motor, and you're like, well, "Can you play my Game Boy?" And you're just playing Tetris. It's nowhere near as bad as Game Gear. My God, that thing would go through batteries. I remember playing Sonic on that thing, and it would be like you'd play through the first three levels, and then you no, the screen would just go. Mm. The, the Game Gear and the Links were they were like we're gonna have color. So they, at the time, color was like kind of like the 3D technology of today, where it just, like, destroy the battery. So, like, a Game Boy will go, like, eight hours. So, like, you'd go on a family car trip, play it with a Game Boy, you'd get wherever you were going, you'd come back, you could still play the whole Game Boy. Like, you could not go anywhere. Your parents some point got pissed off if you had a Game Gear, because it's just, like, we are not buying any more batteries. You've gone through all three rechargeable I'll see. So that you have with that you have with you are not stopping. I eventually found an AC <laughs> adapter that worked with the Game Gear, and, like, my life was insane. I played, like, eight hours of columns in a row. It was unreal. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that was a 
you know, I don't know what my point was about the whole Game Boy it, thing. No, I, I think, no, Game Boy was like a good... Console. Yeah, console. Yeah, and really, Pokemon, believe it, like, mm-hmm. Pokemon is kind of like the most JRPG JRPG. <laughs> like, of, of the old type of JRPGs, it really, I mean, it is, it is Final Fantasy. No. It is exactly Final Fantasy. You know, you, you still have, you know, your guys, and they still have cast spells and do stuff like... You still run around and collect stuff. It's still quirky. It's got it's got character. You want to sit down and play it because it makes you laugh. It makes you want to continue. Right. To play I would it. argue that it's more JRPG than the kind of stuff that they've been putting out in the last I don't know eight years. Probably is. Oh, I definitely have comments on that because <laughs> you know it. Part of it is just again we grew up in a golden age. We watched the progression. Is so it, so maybe uh, well no you know actually I, I have a, a interesting thing to uh, to remark on this because. Leah had had been mostly exposed uh, in like in our conversation. She had played more of the PlayStation based RPGs. Yeah, and I I suggested to her. I think I had Chrono Trigger on PlayStation, right? Mm-hmm. And so I said, "You should play this. This game's really good." And she's like, "Well, as you know. I'm in college." Yeah, and she yeah, that was a good <laughs> idea. So she's like, "Well, you know, it's like 16 bit, whatever. I'll get into it when I get into it." But you know, what? How was that for you? Like, at, at going from from six, you know, like playing like Legend of Dragoon or like you know any of those <laughs> like three or dimensional games down to Chrono Trigger. Yeah, well, I definitely started with the the JRPGs in probably elementary school with uh, Final Fantasy VII, and I just grew to love them so much because I have always loved fantasy, and like I mentioned before, to me it's uh, it's all about the story. So it's kind of like a fantasy movie story that I'm in. So it's kind of like the ultimate thing. Mm. And uh, going from a lot of PlayStation games down to, like, you know, a Nintendo game, uh, Chrono Trigger was really interesting. And it it was a little difficult at first because the characters are so small and it's just so funny. Mm -hmm. I was playing it on a 13-inch screen in my dorm. (laughs) You know, it was pretty appropriate. Um, but the story was amazing and was definitely still there. There's a lot of depth to it, and I really appreciated that and enjoyed the game a lot. And I went on to play Final Fantasy three right after that. Yeah, yeah, I was just like feeding her RPGs. Oh, you play but man, I would not. I would, she was it, testing me. Yeah, that was a test. If you can't play this game, I'm not. Yeah, you can't be with me. So, but. Chrono Trigger really, I think, was the game changer. Final Fantasy III slash Chrono Trigger were the game changers. It was Final Fantasy III. Well, I think that they both had had areas that they they changed the game. Like, Final Fantasy III was the thing that said, look, we we can do the, the character development thing, but we can do it on such a large scale and build such a large world that, that we can tell stories that you could have never told... Uh, on other platforms that like you and again it's it's about like whether or not you want to promote linear gameplay final fantasy 4 is about as linear as it gets there's like two side quests you can like decide if you want to go get you know a couple items later on in the game right. but for the most part it's like dungeon 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 that's, Do you want to get radia from the summoners thing finish that's the every that's every regular final fantasy it is <clears> very linear and you, you're right. It, it is pretty much a dungeon, dungeon, dungeon. At some point, they got. I don't know if it was post Pokemon where they got like because like okay, Final Fantasy two. There were a few kind of side things you could do. Final Fantasy three, and I'm using the American numbers because that's what I grew up with. Uh, there was like a, quite a few side quests, and by like by the time you get to like the, like Final Fantasy like eight and stuff, like 
it is just nothing but side quests. It is. Mm-hmm. It, in, in Final Fantasy 3, though, the thing that differentiated it, like why it's not just like, well, it's this linear gameplay, is that uh, you get to a certain spot in the game. Now, if you haven't played Final Fantasy 3, then shame on you. I, I, I highly doubt you're listening to this podcast. I won't spoil it, but there is a very uh, important part of the game that you basically have, like, you're down to just a few characters. And at that point, you are equipped to be able to beat the game. If you, if you, if you so please. Right. Um, but what they do is they say, look, you, you can beat the game. Your stats are probably good enough. But instead, like, here's all these areas that you can go. And these, these weren't just, like, side areas. These weren't like, hey, we'll go get this sword and bring it to this guy. Like, that's very much the Dragon Quest formula. Um, this is, why don't you go to this town and get this guy, but then we're going to tell you, like, you know, an hour worth of backstory about this person. So then you, like, really care. Like, at the very end of the game, like, you, you know, at, at the end when you're, like, watching everything unfold, you've, you've got the full picture. Like, you actually went start to finish. You had a choice of whether or not you wanted to go find that person. You went and found them. You learned the story, and it, like, wraps it all up in a nice little bow. Unlike Final Fantasy II, it's just, or Final Fantasy IV, whatever, you play the game, and, like, yeah, okay, you get to the end, and each character is a thing. You're done. Like, you don't feel like, hey, I sought out that character, and I learned their story. Like, even, like, a character, like, let's look like Edge in Final Fantasy IV, has barely any backstory. Like, he's this prince, and, and like, you get him because he's, like, randomly uh, uh, near the Tower of Babel or something, and he could leap, and, and you get in there, and, like, it's just, like, he happenstance brings him into your party, but there's no background. Like, you don't care about Edge. And Final Fantasy VI was the first time where you're like, I care about Locke as a character. Right. Like, Locke is... No, in, they did the story very well in that game. Yeah. And, and same with Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger did it on a more... It's more Chrono Trigger is more on the conceptual level. Like, Final Fantasy is very, very uh, straightforward in, in its story. But Chrono Trigger is like, well, look, let's see if we can transcend space and time and have you, like... you have. There's all these endings you can get. Right. Which is why, why I feel that Final Fantasy uh, 3, or yeah, whatever, 6, is, is the one that changed... I, I feel it was the big game changer. It was the one that sort of set the gold standard for JRPGs. Chrono Trigger was uh, this amazing game, but it was almost like the art house game because it didn't sell particularly well in the United States. Not not the way that it was seventy five dollars. <laughs> whatever, but it's not. No, I'm just kidding. Not the way that the that you know that Final Fantasy uh, two and three did. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. Those those games were just like that's when people like were kind of like oh I mean Final Fantasy seven was the first one that that really took off. That was like the big like. They had TV ads for it. And yeah. every, people who didn't normally play RPGs were playing it. But that was really based off of, you know, uh, 2 and 3. It, the, the Chrono Trigger was this game that was a much different game. And, uh, you know, the, the the real connoisseurs like it. And it became a real life-changing experience almost for uh, some certain people because it had all these different endings. You could do all these secret things in the game. But I don't feel like it really changed the game because... It just, you know, it, it just didn't do well enough to change the game. I think it's more about mechanics than anything. Um, <coughs> again, we're not talking... It, you can write a good story. That doesn't mean anything. You could write a good story and put it in Zork and be entertained by it, right? It doesn't matter about uh, uh, the story itself. It's the platform, right? So it's how you get to the story. And I think Chrono Trigger had all of these little elements. Like, okay, well, you're going to go to 65 million B.C., but, like, while you're there, like, the items, like, sort of change. Like, you're not picking up, 
you're, you know, you're not, you're not getting gill anymore because money doesn't exist. You're like collecting horns and trading them for, for components, for, for items. And it was like that, that kind of, that kind of mentality that, that didn't yeah. exist in gaming, like where, you know, you would change your the, the way that you would do transactions. And or stuff that happened in one time period would show up in another. Would show up in another. So it was very much like, on a conceptual level, a much, much bigger undertaking than Final Fantasy. I believe that uh, also, um, I, I love Nubo Uematsu, and I think we could probably do a, a segment at some point on, on music. Um, but I think that Mitsuda, who's the composer for Chrono Trigger, just actually created one of the most amazing soundtracks to any game that's ever been created in Chrono Trigger. Um, I still, uh, I, I, they're, they're, they're one of the few that have been on my iPod and haven't left that anytime <coughs> I get on them, I continue to listen to them. You know, the Tower of Zeal or whatever, the Kingdom of Zeal is one that if you've played Chrono Trigger and you listen to, you're like, you, you just picture the, the golden towers and like the waterfalls mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, well that's, that's Zeal. Like it's, and, and so, actually, I, I want to kind of touch a little bit on um, one of the questions from uh, our friend, the Cube Miser, and he said, uh, "What do you think about game music uh, versus now?" He said, "Old eight bit slash sixteen bit tunes are much more memorable." And I, we're, I don't want to get into this too much because I think we do a whole music episode again. But this is a great example where the the music invokes emotion, like. Right. You hear Frog's theme music, you know. <laughs> See, you hear that music, and you just think like this little frog, yeah. and he's like, he's like, he's he's, uh, he's doing his little gullet like thing, and like he's got his he's got the massive moon, and you just get excited to hear that song. And I think Super Nintendo really kind of like created that. There was no like there there are fun songs on the on the NES. But like they didn't, they didn't really compose until Super Nintendo. Well, the, the thing with the end with the NES was that it didn't offer the composers for it the same tools that you had in a real no, life thing, not. which was interesting because there are so many iconic sounds, so many iconic songs in the NES, mm-hmm. and you know people have of course converted those and started playing them like on the piano and guitar and stuff, and like it is almost impossible. Try playing the Super Mario Brothers theme on a guitar. Oh yeah, like it generally requires two people because it's not designed for human hands to play, and it's and it's really insane to see. Like if you listen to, to, <coughs> to Uematsu's music on um, the early Final Fantasies, you're like, well, yeah, this is really pretty, and then you hear it like in orchestral form, like in his actual like native, you know, his, his native platform, and you're like, this is brilliant. Um, if you listen to Dragon Warrior one, two, three, and four. We're all on the original Nintendo. They didn't do five and six until uh, they did them on the Super Nintendo. But um, you know, if you listen to uh, Dragon Warrior three and four specifically, uh, Koichi Sugiyama is the composer that did those, and he is actually just brilliant. So you listen to him like, you know, it's like very like one dimensional. They only had four. Um, they had four sound uh, uh, things that they could use. There's like a there's a noise track. Uh, right. A bass, a sine wave, and like something else, and so like you to try and fit an orchestra into four <laughs> instruments, one of which is just a sound, it's just like noise, <coughs> is impossible. So if you have, if you love Dragon Quest, like if you ever played the games, go find this guy's music, Koichi Sugiyama. He is brilliant. He's actually uh, my number one uh, uh, composer of any video game music. 
Um, and number one contemporary composer. He actually is just humongous in Japan, obviously, because in Japan, Dragon Quest is, like, the series. You know that they, uh, they passed a law that they can only release Dragon Quests on Sundays? Not surprised, because so many people take off. Yeah, that's what happened, is that, <laughs> like, one, after one or two days, when, like, the, the national productivity dropped by, like, 3%, which for Japan is just, like, phenomenal. They were like, yeah, it turns out all the people are calling in sick for that. Like, I mean, it'd be kind of like, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to, when they release, like, Modern Warfare in, in, in the U.S. And Pro- probably a similar sort of effect. But, <laughs> I'll tell you right now that the, the, the nation's IT departments were ravaged on 11-11 <laughs> or whatever when Skyrim came out. Yeah. It, just a lot of people were yeah. sick that day. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a similar thing where, like, you know, so many people were, it was such a big deal. They're like, yeah, that goes on Sunday when people don't have to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Dragon Quest, uh, we, we talked, if you listen to our last episode of Ink Contention, which I hope you do because, uh, we have good magic content too. Um, the, I started to talk about my introduction into Japanese and Japanese culture. Um, you know, I played all of the Super Nintendo games I get my hands on. By that point, you had Nintendo Powers. Um, you had, I believe you had early, early ages of the internet uh, at the late stages of Super Nintendo. So you could, what's that? You guys Don't forget about the gaming hotline. Oh, yeah, you had the gaming hotline. How much was that like to call? Like probably $3 a minute. <laughs> totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, right. Sure, your parents love getting a bill at the end of the month for $200. How do I get in this pipe? What's this call to Seattle like five times? What's these 900 calls? I don't understand. Oh, Jesus. Um, but, you know, Super Nintendo, let me just tell you, if you were into JRPGs, it was really good for a while, but then it dried up real fast. Uh, we, we, Me and my friend Pat, I got to give a huge shout out to Pat Hastings. He's my, my best friend growing up. Um, we would play the crap out of every game that came out, and we got to a point where we were so desperate we, we rented Tecmo Secret of the Stars. Yeah, let me tell you, uh, that's scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> it was awful. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of options. And one day he's like, hey, he's like, I, I picked it. He calls me on the phone. He's like, I picked this thing up. He's like, I've got to show it to you. It's amazing. And I'm like, okay. So he comes over. He brings up this, this gray-looking cartridge with a bunch of squiggly lines on it, you know, Japanese text on it. It's got a bunch of anime characters. I'm like, all right, sweet. You know, what am I supposed to do with this? He's like, check it out. The music's insane. And I'm like, okay. So so in order to get this Super Famicom game to play, you have to... There's two small tabs inside of your Super Nintendo. And the only difference is this: the, the American version of the Super Nintendo has these tabs. The Japan version doesn't. So that's why in the back of your SNES games, you have like this like little shaft... That's to that's for those tabs. Well, if you take needle nose pliers out, now I don't know how Pat figured this out. You can pull those tabs out and put the game in. It will play. So if you actually buy a Super Famicom, game, it will play. So he's like, check this check this game out. The music is the same. So we fired up. It's Dragon Quest Six. Okay, and, and again, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. We're like, there's no video games to play. So we. We put this game in, and it and it fires up, and it's like, you know, like all this Japanese text, but the music is just like, like we both sit there, we're in my parents' basement, we're just like, this is amazing. What are we going to do? Like, we got to play this game. So I'm like, well, let's, 
you know, can, is there any way that we can get like a Japanese friend of ours to like, you know, translate it? And like, you know, obviously that's insane. You know, they can sit there and tell us the dialogue. So I'm like, I'm chain I'm, up in the basement. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Read this for us. So I'm like, this is easy. Let's just go to the library and get out Japanese books, and we'll just translate it. And and obviously, you know, again, we're like 12, 13 years old. This is a smart idea. So I go to the to the library. I take out a huge stack of books, you know, Japanese dictionaries, uh, you know, kanji, whatever. I come home, obviously spend like three days trying to translate the first sentence of the game, you know. But, you know, eventually get to the point where I pick up, I, 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 I got the item system down. I can get to the point where I can get into battles. I know what attack is because most of it's, it's, it's just memorized. Right. And so, again, every time we get to a new city, we're like, the music is just amazing. If you've never heard the soundtrack, it just came out on DS. Check it out. It's unreal. And so I'm like, well, we got to play this game. So we get on GameFAQs, which very, very, very early days of GameFAQs. This is, remember, we're on dial-up internet. There's no big websites. Um, but GameFAQs does exist. So we get on GameFAQs. There is a guy who translated the entire <laughs> game oh from gosh. English or from Japanese to English, and we actually were able to play through the entire game. So funny story. Uh, when I was in uh, Japan for a pro tour in like oh eight or something, oh, seven humble brags. <laughs> uh, this guy, no Rick, was just like, "You need me to buy me the new Pokemon game, right?" So I'm like, uh, "Whatever." So he gives me like sixty bucks, or whatever it is, to go buy the new Pokemon game. That's like Pokemon Silver or something, which was sure. only in Japan, not in America. And I go to a store and I'm trying to buy it. And the guy's, like, trying to not sell to me because he knows I don't speak any Japanese. <laughs> and I just, just slam the money on the table. I'm just like, give me it, right? So I give to my friend, uh, Rick, who is uh, of limited uh, mental capacity. I'll put it that way. And I'm like, how are you going to play this? Like, you don't understand it. He's like, oh, it's a Pokemon game. All the, all the buttons are the same thing. I'm like, well, why did you get it if you can't read it? And he's like, ah, I just want to be the first guy to have the Pokemon game. <laughs> man, you could have just ordered that off the internet. Oh, man. Why did I awesome. have to go get, you know, some Japanese guy didn't want to sell me the game because I couldn't, you know. He's like, no, no, no English. No English. I'm like, I don't care. I just want the Pokemon game. Give me the silver. Yeah, Pokemon. Pokemans. Pokemans. Well, you played a little Pokemans, didn't you? You played on Pokemans. Nintendo 64. Yeah, one of my uh, ultra-conservative friends' moms told me that it was from the devil because they're pocket monsters. <laughs> but I played it anyway. You were like... Showed her. Someone of a pocket monster. So, you know, obviously talking about game facts, you know, the internet comes out. Being the teenager I am, I was able to uh, find a bunch of user groups that would take games and translate them. So... Very early on, I was able to play Final Fantasy V. I got to play um, Bahamut Lagoon. Got to play around with Super Dante RPG Maker, Treasure Hunter G. These are all translated, by the way, which, um, you know, they're, they're played on YouTube. And there are probably ways that you can pick them up in some way. If you've, if you've got a guilty conscience, go buy it on eBay and then get the emulated game. I mean... What are you going to do? There's there's no other way to play and translate a game than to play ROM. So Like Mother 3 or whatever? Yeah. It's just so, you know, I, I don't advocate <coughs> pirating, but, like, at the same time, like, these are pieces of history. And the Japanese games, like, you'll never play a game like Treasure Energy. Um, so I would just recommend just, you know, just trying to find a copy of it and, and play it. Right. And it's not like if you get, like, you know, Fantasy Star 2 or something that... 
you know, it's not like the, like, like the, Sega's not going to lose money. They're already out of business, right? Right. Well, they they, they <laughs> hey, they they are still they're now a game studio, not a hardware studio. But yeah, you know, it, let's be honest. There's a big difference between pirating, you know, Call of Duty for Modern Warfare Eight or whatever the heck it is, and you know, pirating something like you know a, a 10, 12, 14 year old game that you. I mean, like uh, they. <clears throat> You know, uh, a lot of these games, like, you know, you look at the, the especially the old uh, SNES versions, are like a million dollars. You know, like, what's a, what's a, I, I remember seeing a Chrono Trigger new in box for, it was some just absurd amount of money, thousands of dollars. Oh, there are tons. I mean, in, in some of the good games, you can actually play in Japanese form. So if you find a copy of Terranigma or um, uh, one of the greatest games that I, I'm just now playing through a second time, is Secret of Mana 3, or it's called uh, Seiken Densetsu 3, one of the best platform games of all time. Um, you can play a lot of those. You can play all the puzzle games. So if you have a, if you have a SNES, get the games. They're super fun. Like, I have a huge collection of physical games. So, like, Earthbound, I actually own, wow. but I prefer to, to play it emulated because I want to... I, I just, just play it on, like, 3X? No, like save states, and it's super convenient. Like, because I have the computer hooked up to my TV, so but most of the games that I play, I already own. So it's like kind of silly. But if you want to get into it, like I'm sure you have a friend that has the games, and they would be more than happy to let you play them. Because like, if you're anything like me, Sam and Leah, like you want people to experience that. You don't want to to keep that away from somebody. And uh, in in let's be honest, if Nintendo wanted the ROM ring shut down because it was hurting them. Like they would have shut, they would have shut them down. Like they have virtual console. Like I think so at, to a point it's probably go, they're going to shut them down um, because they don't want it to eat into virtual console sales. But I don't think it does. I think that the people who buy the ROMs or who power the ROMs, the ones who actually buy it on the virtual console. Ex- exactly. That's a, you're a hundred percent right. It's the, it's the fanatics. Like it, the, again, I'm not going to tell you where to get ROMs because I don't think I've downloaded one in ten years. But I'm sure there are resources out there you can find them. Anyway, that's sort of like my spiel. It's not you. Gotta, you uh, should definitely check out the virtual consoles or um, looking at games that your friends might have that are old, even if it means you have to play with a controller with a cord. Um, definitely worth it. I know it's been a long time. No, no, this is really interesting. I I read this long article about how somebody is working on a proper SNES emulator, which seems insane because I've been playing SNES games since like my 486 or something, my Pentium 2 or whatever. (laughs) But some, the thing is that all SNES games are emulated to a certain accuracy. And like that works for most games. And they like this, this whole thing where they were talking about how they, they showed all these different clips of, like, Time Cop, right? Mm-hmm. And how, like, different emulators emulated it. There's always these small differences yeah. of, like, the character lags yeah, a bit. Yeah, the aliasing and right. shadows. Because, the, you know, the, S- the SNES is a very specific set of hardware. And <clears throat> it's something that doesn't happen now. But back then, you know, developers got to know the hardware really well. Mm-hmm. And, like, if there was, like, a, a, some sort of flaw in the hardware that did something weird, they could just incorporate that. Mm-hmm. And like, like, well, how'd you make that happen? Well, we just, you know, like, how did you make the uh, the NES make this one sound? Well, if you mash these three chords together, then it like errors and gives you this other chord, and so that's how we get that chord. <laughs> no, that's... And like, that's how they make games. And so, like, you emulate them, and you know, like, Chrono Trigger uh, did not work well on emulators for a while. 
when they, you know, when the emulators were first big. It was layered. Yeah, right. lots of, like, layers to the background. Right, and that didn't work well on emulators. It no. took a while. But somebody's actually trying to emulate the physical hardware. Like, the entire, and, like, you know, it, it requires, like, a high-end PC to really get to what he's trying to do. Because, you know, he's not, like, trying to, you know, you, you plug it in and it does something very similar. He's literally trying to emulate the entire hardware mm-hmm. of an of a, um, SNES on a computer. And so it doesn't even play in real time yet. I just said, I mean, I think the whole the whole gaming community around emulation is really cool. I mean, it's pretty tight-knit. And like I said, if it was such a problem, Zohar's domain would have been shut down, t- like, <laughs> I, I literally almost 20 years ago. Like, that's when that's... Not that you can tell them where to get ROMs or anything. You can't get them at Zohar's domain. They only have emulators. Oh, really? Yeah, so that that was where I went when I was doing emulation on the Dreamcast. You can <clears throat> you can download them there, but, like, you have to have the ROMs. And, like, it's it's very... It's like a gentleman's agreement in the ROM community... That if you get a ROM, you own the game. Like that's like the whole idea behind it. But obviously, that doesn't ever happen. But well, like for the transfer ones, like it's just so hard. Yeah, for tra- yeah. But and then like there's also the other stuff that were, like they have like unreleased games where somebody gets you know like on eBay or something. Some like uh, every once in a while one will pop up where there's a game that was never released, but they had like pre-production copies of it, and they'll like put that out. Sometimes people even finish the games. Yeah. Like oh, and there's there's fan uh, uh, hacks that are basically there are patches that lay over the top of the game, which is it's actually brilliant programming, um, where you can you can play entirely different versions of Super Metroid. The world's totally different. The characters look different. The enemies are different, and the items are different. So it's like it's crazy. Yeah, they they've completely redesigned wow. the game, and they they have full versions of Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger. Uh, I've only played through a few of them. I'll, I'll be honest, they're, they're pretty primitive most of the time. But when you get a good one, I mean, they're done pretty well. And then, like, the NES ones are hilarious. They're just like, you know, Super Mario Brothers, where Mario is just a floating head, you know? And, like, that's the only and that's the only part that they that they emulated. So you just, like, play Mario as a floating head, and it's silly. But um, I want to uh, I wanna kind of transition over to PlayStation. Okay. And the next the next generation of consoles because uh, really Chrono Trigger was the pinnacle of Super NES uh, RPG era games. I mean there were there were other games that came out, but I think that that was really that was the very end of Super Nintendo's life cycle. Between that and Donkey Kong Country, Donkey yeah, ah. Donkey, from a yeah from a hardware perspective, Donkey Kong Country was right. Those first. those are the two games that really uh, took the SNES hardware as far as it could go. That really put sort of the capstone on that entire era. That were like, you know, these these are the, those were like the, you know, there were other games that came after those, but that was kind of like that's when you hit the pinnacle, and it was like we re- this is as this is as high as the system is going to go, and from this point on, if you want new stuff, you have to you just need a new system because yeah. we can't go any further. So we had three systems come out pretty pretty close to each other. I mean, there's turbo just, graphics. So we had turbo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we had the Jaguar. Jaguar was actually a pretty fun system with the big telephone controller. Um, the Xbox controller was big. Ooh. Yeah, right. Yeah, that thing, you could kill someone with it. Um, so we had PlayStation, the first PlayStation come out. Um, then we had Sega Saturn and then Nintendo 64. Now, Nintendo 64, aside from like two games, which weren't even really RPGs, had no RPGs, period. Um, Nintendo made a big folly... Uh, actually, if you look at old Nintendo Powers, they actually preview Final Fantasy VII. They show the character wireframing, and basically what happened is Squaresoft 
saw that Nintendo was staying with the cart-based approach, which was extremely expensive from a development perspective. To put to, to give you an idea, to build a disc-based game, even in the early stages of Nintendo dev or in the early stages of uh, video game dev, was about five dollars a game to to process and create a disc. To do a cartridge was thirty-five dollars to process and create a cartridge. Now that doesn't count development costs. Doesn't count anything else. Right. That's just for the technology to put the cart together. So basically, uh, not not just that, there were restrictions on cart size and those sorts of things. Um, so SquareSoft wants to build these giant games, these huge worlds. They have, you know, big supercomputers that they that they've got these games on, and they're looking at the Nintendo de- de- development kit, and they're like. We can't even fit our game on seven of your cartridges. That's seven. To back up a second, I don't know. You, you probably know this. Maybe you don't know this. I'm just going to blow your mind. Do you know about the original Secret of Mana? Secret of Mana was intended to be the big launch title for the SNES CD. Well, I know about SNES CD. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was is they got Sony to develop this, you know, because the idea was that Genesis came out with the Genesis CD. And you, you plugged it in the cartridge slot, and you could play CDs on it. Well, i got to talk about CDs. Now, now, for the most part, what Sega CD resulted in was one really cool game called, God, it was called Striker or something, which was like a cool RPG, and then a bunch of car- things where they needlessly put video in games that didn't need video. No, we got to talk about Sega, Sega CD. But, but hold on one second. Uh, you know, and, and so, like, it, it did not sell particularly well. And Nintendo had been playing the exact same thing with... with uh, <coughs> With the SNES, where you'd have the SNES CD. Mm. And uh, Secret of Mana was going to be like the big launch thing, because Sony was working on it. Um, and they had all, Square had all this stuff planned out for it. And what happens is that Nintendo, you know, at some point says, you know what, the Sega CD is failing. We're, not, we're just going to, we're not going to do a CD thing. And Sony lost just, they were, you know, they, they like, you know, spent all this money researching it and it got cut. And that's, and the, the team... Then they sort of sat around and said, well, what are we going to do? We have this yeah. whole team developing this Super Nintendo CD, and that's the team that became the PlayStation team. Right. And so Nintendo actually, in a way, did their, own, down, their yeah. own downfall by like getting Sony to hire all these people and put them on a team together to develop this CD-based system. And Nintendo, not only did they scrap the, uh, the CD for the, you know, for the SNES, and because you know, they were like, you know, these load times are horrible, mm. people hate it. You know, you know, because like you played Sonic on the Genesis, and it'd be like level, 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 level. Right. You played it on the CD, and it'd be like level and loading screen, and level and loading screen. Right. And you know, and that was Nintendo said, yeah. you know, we're not doing these loading things. Things we are going with the cartridge system. Yeah. Sony, of course, having all this money invested in it, just went forward, developed a PlayStation based on that team, yeah. and then you know that was the you know the end of the cartridge era, and Nintendo didn't hear about it until it was a little too late. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned Sega CD because that was like the perfect transition system. Again, end of Super Nintendo's life cycle. They did Sega CD, they did 32X, Jaguar, all those things. Like uh, 3DO, um, all those systems came out. And Sega CD was actually the one hit uh, where you actually did get some good JRPGs. Um, Popful Mail is one of my favorite platformers of all time. It's uh, That was on the Sega CD. They're good fantasy star too. The, uh, the fantasy star... And Shining Force CD also, um, but they, there was a game development company. They or actually they weren't a development company. They were more a production company, I believe. And what they did was port over titles from Japan and translate them very oh, well. Wow. So they, this company is called Working Designs, and Working Designs did three big games on 
the Sega CD, one of which you've actually played. Vi. Yeah, I played that on my iPhone. Yeah, so that was a Sega CD. And that game was, wasn't very good, but it was an RPG, and I enjoyed right. it. Um, but the real big games, and these actually were popular years down the line, are, are is the Lunar series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Lunar, um, Silver Star and Lunar Eternal Blue were uh, incredible games that you know me and my friends enjoyed playing. And and really the rest of the system, Sega, Sega uh, uh, Sonic CD was an amazing game. It's actually... It's actually well uh, uh, well agreed to be the best Sonic game. Right. And again, that that was a system that was, you know, it was a good system. It was just not a good seller. No. And it was like, it was like clunky. You had to get this big, if you ever want to watch a segment on, I think that Angry Video Game Nerd actually has a good segment. And basically, you have to put all these pieces together and all these chords and God forbid you have a 32X and it's like this giant cluster of a system and it's like it's not practical that you know you expect people to not only buy a sega genesis but also to uh spend 200 dollars, which is what a sega cd cost on top of it and then the games are like 80 bucks yeah and the games are expensive and and not only that like the depth of gameplay was awful like the only thing like once the one trap yeah, like, once, like, the, the excitement of, like, oh, I get to play, like, real people, you know? There's video. Yeah, there's, once you realize There's that, 320 by 240 resolution, 16, you know, <laughs> color video. Yeah, exactly. And, and once you realize that that's just, like, super gimmicky, it, the games are awful. But the but the real the real uh, gem of it was that you could cram a lot of information on these. So you're like, right. wow, a cutscene. I've never seen a cutscene before. Right. So uh, Lunar Silver Star Story was the one where I really noticed it. Where we have we have um, live music, so the composers were actually able to put what real live instruments on. They're not using like some engine that were restricted it, by the not MIDI. It was it was actual instruments and not MIDI. Exactly. Um, and then you know and then any you know cutscenes and things. So it's like it, it showed the power of the CD. So uh, again, so we said uh, Sega Dreamcast, uh, Nintendo sixty four, and uh, not Dreamcast uh, Saturn. Saturn had um, some really good JRPGs on. I don't want to get into them, but uh, if you ever have, if you own a Saturn, Dragon Force, the Panzer Dragoon Saga, Albert Odyssey. I mean, these are all my, games that. My understanding of the Saturn, its big downfall was that it didn't use a polygon system. Hmm. Like most most current you know video cards have to use triangles, millions of triangles, and they somehow used a four pointed thing to do it. Like it was, they somehow used some different rendering engine, and it was just like a complete debacle. Uh, you know, because it was just really hard to program for. It was much different than the other technology that was floating around. You know, it, it, you know, this, the the sales numbers on it are like, I mean, just abysmal. I think it sold under a million units or something. Wow. Which for you know for Sega going from the Genesis to a, a system that sold basically nothing. Yeah. You know, then the obviously the Nintendo, you know, Nintendo had the big advantage of having really good launch titles. They had other issues that you know the cartridge based thing. Ended up biting in the end. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for a while, they were, you know, they came out before the PlayStation, and it was like, you know, th- there was a period where it didn't look like the PlayStation would even make the United States. Right. You know, and, and that was, it was all the Nintendo 64, but, you know, you're right, there were certain kinds of games that just didn't fit onto it, and RPGs did not work on it. You no, because you had big, long stories and orchestrated, orchestrated right. music. And, and another problem with the, with the uh, N64 was that text did not display particularly well. Hmm. Like it didn't. It wasn't like the worst thing in the world, but it did not look great. Yeah. And so there were a lot of type of games that you know, if you wanted to have a lot of text based stuff, like it just didn't look as clear as it would on, even on a pixelated system. Mm. 
And so it was kind of, and you, you didn't want to read that all day long. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, you're right. There were just really no RPGs. The sports games were not generally that great because it was very early in the 3D technology yeah. and they sort of like jumped the gun on it. Uh, yeah. So the system itself, like, you know, gems, it had, you know, it had Goldeneye. It had, um, God, what else was on that system? It had Banjo-Kazooie. It had, obviously, Super Mario uh, 64. You know, Star Fox. Star Fox 64. Zelda. I love N64. Right. Except the thing was that the, you know, if you look at all the good uh, N64 uh, games, they were all first party or rare. Yeah. Well, Those were the Nintendo, only. Nintendo, like, would only license their own stuff, and they did that all the way up until, well, it wasn't like, just, the GameCube. But it wasn't, it wasn't that they wouldn't license their own stuff. It was that they became hard to, de- difficult to deal with. They, uh, you know, right? Because they had a very, they had a proprietary language. You had to learn. You had to do all this jumping through hoops to get stuff to to work on it. And the PlayStation comes out, and they're like, "Okay, you can write our stuff in C." And you know what? Every programmer in the world at that point knew C, and it it was a much easier system to develop for. And so the developers just loved the system because it was just you had you had more access, you had more space, you had development tools that were logical and that yeah. people already had a general idea of how to work with yeah. as opposed to the Nintendo system where like you'd have to basically have developers that did nothing but Nintendo developers. Yeah. No, you're 100% right. Um, I, I think that's a really interesting topic. Uh, For another day? No, no, just, just the, just the, the like what ifs of Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo, it's a, it's a wonder that they existed through Nintendo 64 and GameCube. I mean, absolutely just, it, it, it's just on the sheer fact that they had kids' games. I, I, I think that's well, pretty no, much it. But the thing is that it's not a wonder they existed because it's a wonder that they still produced consoles that you plug into your TV. Well, actually, it's pro- yeah. I was gonna say it's handhelds that really hand the the you know the the, the Game Boy was like uh, I think lasted for eight years before the um the, the Super Game Boy came out or the, the, the Game Boy SP the, the Game Boy Advance came yeah. out. You know, and then the Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Advance sold, sold okay. It was really when the, the SP came out had backward screen. Yeah, and uh, well, the, the, no, because the Game Boy Advance had a backward screen. No, it didn't. Are you sure? Positive. Okay. Game Boy. One I did did, but I didn't get it. Totally Game Boy right. Color and Game Boy Advance didn't right when they first came out, and then they did the Game Boy SP, which was like more compact, bigger screen. People were like, oh, this is amazing. Right, but the, they, you know, the Pokemon <coughs> franchise, they, you know, they did a great job of. Of you know of keeping themselves going, and it was also much it was so much cheaper to build for the Game Boy than it was for you know like the the N sixty four. It and became stuff. very frustrating for guys that like to play RPGs on the screen, and it still is to this day. The Nintendo DS engine is very easy to develop for apparently because every RPG in the world just gets put out on there and doesn't get like ported to like you know a virtual console or something. Because I would play some of these games. I have. Three. I have a Nintendo DS XL because I, I can't look at a handheld screen, and that's about as good as I can get. I have Fire Emblem, which I love the Fire Emblem series, um, Dragon Dragon Quest Nine, and Sukoden uh, Takiris. And I literally played like an hour of each because I can't play handheld games. I just can't do it. But I want to talk about the PlayStation era because, um, like, you know, we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes, and we, we've just scratched the surface. Uh, I have talked to Sam about this a lot because my opinion is that for sheer um, volume memorability of the games and like yeah definitely for volume like if you 
if you were to take the top 50 games of any system, like I believe that the PlayStation just beats them out. And Sam thinks that's just statistics because there's so much more. Because there's you're probably right, but five it, or six times. I mean, it was I think we figured it was four times as many PlayStation games that were SNES games. No, be, that, be that as it may, um, I I think that there is just so many games out there that um, you couldn't if you if you never experienced it, you couldn't even like, especially if you're our age. Find the time of the day to play them. I mean, we could we could talk all day and rifle off, rifle them off. But what I think it might be more worthwhile is maybe just post a small list of some of the games that uh, you know that we like. Maybe I can put that in the show notes or something. Or if you have a particular uh, genre that you like to play, PlayStation really was able to do that more better than the Nintendo sixty four and Dreamcast. But uh, I'll just talk about like the the few games that the few games I think changed the way that JRPGs really were looked at um, and how I looked at them. Uh, the, the Final Fantasy VII, obviously, was humongous and was very influential in, you know, most gamers who were able to game, uh, you know, back when the PlayStation came out. But for me, it was Sukoden was the series that I really latched onto. They actually, they've done five of them up, up to now. The first two were on PlayStation. And uh, it, it's just, again, it's, uh, it's very straightforward storytelling, but it's, it was done very well. Um, but the thing that I think makes that one stand out is just the sheer volume of music in that game. And for me, it was more about the music and the art and, like, kind of walking around experiencing the world, um, you know, and, and watching the story unfold than most other RPGs. Like, I think Final Fantasy VII, VIII, and IX were trying to be flashy at times uh, when I didn't really care about being flashy. Like, I kind of, like, got over that when I was playing the sports games and the fighting games and things like, well... I'll just play Cool Borders if I want to, like, you know, play a snowboarding game. I don't need to play a snowboarding game inside of my Final Fantasy VII game. Sure, sure. Because I don't care because the <laughs> controls suck. You know, I want to do a flip, and you won't let me do a flip. But um, the game that, like, just changed everything. Let's say I'm going to let you fill in the blanks. Actually, you guys say it. I'm going to count to three, and you're both going to say it at the same what, time. Ready? What are you saying? You're going to say the game, that my favorite game of all time, the game that changed... Everything, the way that I thought about video games, and we're going to do it, right? One, two, three. Xenogears! Xenogears. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a huge Xenogears nut. Um, if you've never played this game, and you like JRPGs, you're an idiot. It, it is. It is. Okay, so here's my... my someone said, well, you know, how can JRPGs become more, more you know, like relevant or whatever? Uh, in my opinion, it is to become less Japanese. <laughs> like Xenogears was it, like his cranny was like oh you gotta play this game like it's the best game ever right and I started playing it and like I don't understand half of what's going on like they're just like somebody who was writing it was just nuts okay well me and Sam used to work together and we would you know when we would take our breaks we would talk about uh, magic video games whatever and uh, I came in one day and said I'd, I'd just beaten this game and it was insane. And Sam's like, well, I game and, and I bet it's not that insane. I'm like, no, you should play it. <laughs> so he didn't he didn't have a, a working PlayStation, so I brought my PlayStation in, the nice guy that I am, with my Xenogears and a memory card and a controller. And I said, here, play it. And he played it for like, I think you played it like eight hours. And you came in and you're like, this game sucks. Like, you're not even, I don't even think you said that. I think you're just like, eh. Yeah, and then I said, "No, no, no, no!" I'm like, "Just play it. Just trust me. Just play it another eight hours. Give it a shot. Come back and talk it's to me." The Final Fantasy Thirteen uh, Syndrome, the 35 hour tutorial. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and I think you, I think you eventually, you did come back and you spoke very highly and you say, oh, it's a good right. game experience. It, and, and what I liked about it, uh, more than other games is that it was really, uh, you know, I always enjoyed the storytelling part of gaming more than anything. And it was the story for me. Like it was, I, I've read, a, uh, books in my life and the book for me, like the book is Musashi. Like all other books have to measure up to Musashi and that is the same way for Xenogears. Like, what is all, Musashi? Musashi was, uh, it, you know, Legend of the Five Rings? Yes. That's, that is written by Miyamoto Musashi. He oh. wrote that book. Um, now, it's, it's debatable whether he was actually a figment of the author's imagination or real person or lore or all the above. But uh, he also, like, he basically was a samurai that studied Sun Tzu. Um, and uh, basically walked the the you know Meiji era Japan and sliced up people and it's, it's insane. It's a really good book. Um, I actually was recommended. Uh, um, sorry, honey, the uh, girl that I was dating at the time, her father was a doctor and said, "You need to read this book." He was very stern, like you know, uh, very hard to get along with. But he actually connected with me because I spoke Japanese, and he said, "You have to read this book because in business." If you want to understand Japanese people, you need to read this book. I'm like, okay. So, so for Christmas, he bought me this book, and it's like 2,000 pages long. Jeez. And I'm like, my God, I might read this. It's like Bible paper thickness. Yeah. Know? <laughs> and I read it, and it really did. At the time, I was very immersed in Japanese culture, and it, it is a reflection of how Japanese businessmen see themselves. Wow, this is very, very insightful. It is. No, it's, it, it's, it's amazing. So... Yeah, that's my thing. Like, Xenogears is just, you know, storytelling at its best. You know, the graphics were, were awesome. The music is, is it, it was done by the guy that did Chrono Trigger, so Mitsuda did the music again. And it's just, like, the last, the last Squaresoft game that I really remember, like, that is Squaresoft. Like, Squaresoft nailed it. They know how to make games. And then, like, after that, it was, like, Fun Fantasy Nine, and I just... Like, I, I, it's like, yeah, okay, so I have played... Every American released major Final Fantasy, uh, except for twelve. But you're right. There was a certain point where, like, it really started with seven, where like the style sort of started overtaking the substance, and like some of them just like, like I played, uh, you know, I played thirteen, and like it is just like you don't understand what is going on. Like everything just starts getting nuts, and like. Everyone's acting like it's just completely normal. That like they never, there's no backstory. <laughs> They're just like throwing into this world, and there's all this cool stuff going on. And you're like, oh, a Choboko, okay. Like the chick that lives in the guy's afro. The little yeah, the little, little Choboko, <laughs> uh, Choboko lives in his afro. Yeah, just just you know, normal. Oh, oh, those are the you know what are they called the the uh, <coughs> the lassie, and like you're just expected to follow along. Yeah, and like the the whole genre has really gotten into these like. You know, and, and, and so American RPGs have really come on their own on consoles and stuff in the last, you know, few years. Like, you know, the popular is Skyrim for crying out loud. Yeah, Skyrim, you know, is, is an extreme of like, there is no, like, it's the, a way of life. The, yeah, the, 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 the Bethesda model is there's no, there's very little, you know, direction. It's like, we're going to throw you into an, to a world and you do whatever you want to. Like, I remember when Morrowind came out, which was like the, Third Elder Scrolls game. The first two were on you know, Xbox. The first two were consoles. Morrowind was the first one that came out for. Uh, uh, well, the first two were on PC. Third one was first one that came out on consoles, and it was like there were I think 
four or five NPCs you couldn't kill or the game would end, and that was it. Like, you could go around do whatever you wanted to. Like, it's a completely different storytelling thing. Like, you have alignment systems, you know, it's like, you know, you get thrown into a world, and they're like, you explore the world, you do what you want to do, and you figure out how to get through it. And, like, you know, even stuff like you know, Mass Effect, which is kind of more of an action RPG, you know, it's still a game where, you know, you have a lot of options. There's morality choices. You can sort of sculpt your character the way you want it. You know, you, your character can be a complete asshole who just shoots instead of, you know, talking. Or you can be someone who tries to get through all the situations as diplomatically as possible. And JRPGs just don't do that. It's like, here are your characters. You're going to watch a movie. And they become a lot more movie-like. Where I remember parts mm-hmm. of, like, in the last few Final Fantasy games were like, you know, like even even Xenogears, there's a section that's like an hour and a half long where you yeah. press press A. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like there's no they're just okay. We're just gonna we lost a bunch of money in development and we we're gonna do like three discs or yeah. whatever three discs. We did two instead. So disc number two is gonna be played out as you know a series of hitting A's. <laughs> you know, and okay, we'll just get you. Let's admit it. Final Fantasy thirteen, you could pretty much just hit A throughout the entire game. <laughs> like there wasn't a whole lot of like. You know, even like the questing and stuff, you just every, you upgrade your equipment now and then. You just keep hitting A. You bash things. It even chooses the right attack for you. There's no decisions you make. You're watching a movie, and like the whole genre, I think has not caught up with the American genre of like, here's a character. You know, you know, you are going to play this character, and you know, there's this whole st- the same. Most American, a lot of American RPGs have the same you know story arc. Like the Mass Effects have probably as good, if not better. I think it's better, but I don't know if you would agree. Uh, you know, arc as any of these JRPGs, but you actually got to do things. You know, you got to make decisions that impact things, and that just you know, there's no JRPG coming out now, uh, at least none that I've seen or played, where like your decisions have any actual weight. You know, it's, it's all decided for you, and you're just you know playing through a movie as opposed to playing a role playing game. I think that JRPGs today, to bring our whole conversation back full circle from the original question, which is how they sort of don't encapsulate the original intent of what a JRPG is, um, I think that they get so caught up in the mechanics and the flash and the sizzle of the game that they forget that, you know, we just want to, we just want to have a memorable gaming experience. So when I play a game, I don't get excited that, you know, I can I can get, like, this big convoluted item system and, you know, meld weapons. Like, I don't care about that. Now, that might be my gaming sensibility, but if I wanted to, if I wanted to make weapons and, like, do that crap, I would play Skyrim. Like, I just don't, I don't care enough to spend 20 hours to, like, to, you know, build a piece of armor or find some spear because it's just not, like, the gamer I am. And I think that that JRPGs have always done a good job of saying, well, look, you can do that, but it's not important. Like, go in a straight line from point A to point Z and, like, zigzag around and, like, do what you need to do, but, like, you're going to end up here if you want to get there in a reasonable amount of time. And I think that's where, you know, even, like, games that are are really well-intentioned, you know, like Lost Odyssey and... Uh, I, I got Xenoblade and some other ones where it was very difficult to get into them because, like, the first ten minutes of the game, you're like, well, here's this crazy item system and, like, all these things that you have to do with it or, like, you know, the, the camera angles suck or you know, there's just, like, some some hindrance, like, like just make it simple. Like, I, uh, 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 
got a testament to video game companies not working. Why do we not have a sequel to Symphony of the Night? Like, how many gamers have just been like, look, just do it exactly like this on the PlayStation with better graphics? Yeah, no, never going to happen. They would sell a million copies. A freaking million. Definitely talking to two Nesker and boys here. We got Sam talking about playing Final Fantasy X and pressing A through the whole thing. No <laughs> such thing, PlayStation. <laughs> X, my, <laughs> my man. And uh, Matt, you're talking about side-scrollers being, like, what you want in life. That's not PlayStation 3. That's not what the 12-year-old boy wants today. He wants COD. Shoot some... Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I it, it's not in the it's not in what gamers want today, which is why games like Call of Duty and the, and those games do so well. But that's changing, and it's Skyrim. I'm telling you, change that because Skyrim outsold. I, well, I don't know if it ended up outselling it, but there was a. Uh, it looked at one point like Skyrim was going to outsell Call of Duty, but it's still not. But that's not a JRPG. Right? No, no, no. But the thing is that. What it does is it tells the gaming industry that you can do something different. Mm. And so the problem is that with the gaming industry is it is so expensive to produce a, a full game. Like the you know the the whole market for the the Xbox Live or the PlayStation's PlayStation's uh, stuff sucks. Like let's just be honest, their PlayStation Network stuff is just not very good compared to the Xbox Live stuff. It just that's just how it is. Like mm. Xbox Live mm. is a much better platform. Um, but like. The, the whole, you know, like, it costs, you know, it'll cost over a million dollars to produce a game for Xbox Live. Right. It costs, you know, what does it cost to produce a full, you know, a full video game? I mean, yeah, it costs... Like $50 million. Right, and some of the, well, you know, I, I think the, av- that much, but the average ones are, like, you know, like $20 million, some yeah. are more than that. And, it, there, you know, it becomes to the point where it's like movies where you can't take risks. You know, you produce what sold well last time because it's going to sell well this time. Yeah. And, you know, we've gotten to the point where pretty much everything is a sequel, and then something will come out that's not a sequel, which just means that we have something else to produce sequels of. Yeah. You know, and th- there's, there's no innovation. There's no, like, desire to, like, be like, well, we're going to try something that is not exactly what sold well last year. And Skyrim did that. Well, no, Skyrim is, a, is an example of the exception to the rule, which, you know, I just hope that the, the development companies get away from the current formula because, I, I mean, I don't know if they're successful, but I know that I've picked up at least a half a dozen games in the last four or five years that I've played through two or three hours of it, and it's like, this is awful. Actually, it has, it has to be closer to, like, ten games. Um, I'll give you a few examples, and I don't mean that these games are bad, but these are games that, 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 um, that reviewed well that uh, I don't necessarily think that uh, I, I would ever play them. Uh, so, like, the Tales games... Anime-based games that got very good ratings could not get into them. Not that I didn't like. I'm not a Japanese anime guy, but like I figured, okay, well, if the storyline's good enough, like I've played games that were Japanese anime before, like maybe right. I'll maybe I'll enjoy. It. No, um, you know, most of the uh, RPG series on the Xbox that uh, that I tried out, I actually bought an Xbox for uh, Lost Odyssey, um, Star Ocean, those games. Again, played them for four eight hours. Usually that's enough time to like have you understand like 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 if I play the first eight for eight hours of Zen years for me that that's awesome because I'm like right. story 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 these ones it, it, it's no emphasis on the story and if it is it's like Final Fantasy thirteen you're like well let's see you're like what like why don't you just call it like spirits or something why do you have to call it let's see and then like 
it's they don't even explain what it is for the first ten hours of the game, and like even then you're like, well, like why are they fighting against these guys? And like, like yeah, that was a pretty cool scene on the train, but I don't care about that character, you know? Like, and the characters, the thing, other thing is that the characters in the JRPGs are just so Japanese, and like you know, it just it makes no sense at points where it's like there's just like some dude who just has guns and he's like wearing this like fashionable military coat, and there's this girl who's just wearing like you know. She's a soldier, but every other soldier in the entire universe has, like, full body armor. And she just has, like, you know, like... A bra and... A bra and panties on, plus a sword. And just, like, can we just please, 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 please have characters that are not all just Japanese pop stars? Yeah. And that's... try pretending that you don't think that that girl's awesome. She's kind of <laughs> awesome, but, I mean, you know, it, so every... badass... Every character is to Japanese pop star. How boring would it be if that like chick was just clad in giant armor and like you know, just every now and then like take her helmet off? I'm like, yeah, I agree. No, she has to have a helmet on, but you know, yeah, I got you. I I totally agree. Like, I know you have never played the Mass Effect series. I played one, um, and here's my my issue with the Mass Effect and really any of those games. Maybe it's the completest in me trying to break out, but I always feel like there's a loose end. So, like, if you if you if you engage me in conversation in a game and you're like, "Do you want to go to this town?" I'm like, "Sure." Uh, I'll say I'll say no now. Let me go get my shit, and then I'll say yes. Oh, sorry to say that. Um, but like, don't be like. So, what do you think about the imperial whatever? I'm like, okay, uh, it's good. Okay, well then, what do you think about like you know the decision to do this? Uh, uh, yeah, that was that was good. Okay, well, do you want to go to this planet after we go here, or do, would you like to go here? Uh, well, I don't know. Like, what does that mean for me? Am I going to miss an item or something? Like, I just, like, it becomes so convoluted. Like, I don't want to make the decision. Like, I want to be told a story. Like, you you spent all this time to create this story. I don't care to make the decisions. Like, you've decided what the ending of the game is. So, like, just tell me the best story to get there. But, like, that's the thing is that the, the, what it lets you do is play it to an extent. And of course, like you're never going to get through Mass Effect without shooting something. But it's like, you know, you play the game the way you want to, you know, you choose your class, you know, so you get different abilities. You know, you decide on how you want to resolve problems. And all those decisions you make, like, if you haven't played the Mass Effect series, too bad, I'm going to spoil some stuff. You know, in the first game, there's all kinds of things where it's like, uh, the, there are these um, ancient robots that have been, you know, that come out of uh, basically hibernation, or coming out of hibernation, and there's one point where the at the very end of the game, the you know the, the one that's uh, awake and is like you know sort of behind the scenes is attacking the citadel, which is the main uh, base. And you know you have to make a decision. Okay, am I going to save the council or am I going to go straight towards the baddie? And you can you know you can do either one. It doesn't matter which one you do particularly, except you know that those ramifications happen again in the second game, where you know it, it can it looks at your old save game for the second game and says okay. This character died, so this character's not in the second game. We've replaced with somebody else. You know, this thing happened, and so, uh, you know, this other section in the second game, you know, mentions it. Like, you know, you get to really just, you know, sort of choose what you do, and they have ramifications later. So, like, you know, if you want your character to just be, like, a complete, you know, douche no- no- nozzle, they can be a complete, you know, they can resolve anything like they're a complete douche nozzle, and, you know, that, you know, those conversation stuff comes up later in the game. Yeah, and I like that. It's like choose your own adventure book. Some people aren't into that kind of thing, but I certainly was. I love having a say, and 
and potentially changing things and taking different paths. I think that's like empowering. It's super exciting. Plus, you got to play it twice because you're like, hey, I got to make <laughs> the good decision. I got to make these decisions yeah. one time, this other decision the next time. And you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the third one, which is the end of the series, mm-hmm. and hoping that they. I've, there's been some spoilers of the of the storyline where supposedly they, you know. Certain decisions you made just get erased because they're not convenient. Yeah. But I'm hoping that doesn't happen. So, to uh, you know, we've talked an hour and a half. Clearly, we we uh, we have a lot to say on the subject. I would love to do another one of these again. Yeah, um, sure. We had a lot of people tweet in. I will write them down and make sure that we, you know, if we do another one, we can talk about them. If you're interested in seeing one, make sure you comment or tweet at us that you listened to it and you liked it. Um, obviously, you know. There are, there are a million things we can talk about with JRPGs. I think that, like, the bottom line is that, you know, I'm storyline-driven. Sam is, you know, character-driven. Character-driven. So that sort of changes uh, our perspectives. But, you know, if you if you haven't played all these old games, you can still experience them just the same way as anyone else. Lee is a great testament to that. And mm-hmm. um, to wrap up the show, Lee, did you have something that you wanted to say? Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, okay. She's, she's going to do a little wrap there. Um, and, uh, Sam, you got anything that you want to add? Or? Uh, no, I, I think just, uh, you know, if, if you're somebody who likes gaming, you know, definitely go through, play some of the games we mentioned. You know, of course, you should always buy the game before you download the ROM. But, you know, if, if you don't have an N64 uh, or a Nintendo, Super Nintendo, which I do, but, you know, not everyone else yeah. does, you know, you can always get an emulator. Just go on YouTube, too, man. Type any game in, followed by TAS, which is Tool Assisted Speedrun. Most cases, you'll be able to watch them. RPGs are a little awkward. Um, I'm going to... I started to write this article. I'll probably pick it back up. But I have the, the 100 games I think you should play before you die. And I will try to get at least a rough copy of it posted at some point, And I'll, we'll, we'll reference it on the show or something. That sounds good. That's it. All right. Well, until next time, we're in contention. <laughs>